This is Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to BR Football Ranks. Hello and welcome to BR Football Ranks, your favourite football podcast as we enter what is a World Cup-esque fever dream of a month of football. My name is Jack Collins and I will be your host today and I'm joined as ever by the rank god Sam Tai. Hello mate. Hello mate. And of course our transfer guru Mr Dean Jones who is in his element right now. Hello young Jack. Am I? I guess well, so, yeah. I mean, this, is, yeah. this is your I'm time of year DJ. My screen time's up. I know that much. Um, <laughs> a lot of WhatsApps and a lot of calls going out. Yeah, exactly. What's the screen time? What's the average? What are we talking? I think it's up to 7.45 and it's usually about 6.30. Oh, jeez. I think I'm on about eight. It's not even my transfer season. I'm still beating you. That's how oh, really? That's what, that encourages me then. You do actually yeah. have a child, two children, in fact, though. So your screen time has to be down. Well, to be fair, he's mostly on my phone watching YouTube, so maybe that's actually why it's gone up. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. It's not actually anything to do with transfers. It's just Dylan watching Peppa Pig. Um, we are into what is an incredibly fun month of football, boys, and I am extremely excited. You know, we kicked off last night with the Europa League quarterfinals, this kind of knockout, straight-off-the-bat football, and it very much delivered, didn't it, Sam? Yeah, I mean... Inter Milan by Leverkusen was one of the best games I've seen in ages. It was the best first half I've seen in years. Uh, and it just carried on. It carried on. And Leverkusen defended so atrociously against Lukaku and co. that I am surprised, genuinely, that Inter didn't come out of that game with at least eight goals. They only won 2-1 in the end and because they couldn't kill it, kill it off and get that two-goal cushion. Inter, so Leverkusen sort of came back into the game, started threatening. It started to get a bit helter-skelter, started to get a bit end-to-end. You've got Havertz against Lukaku. Man, the Europa League is just, it's just brilliant. And then on the other channel, I mean, I caught the extra time, obviously, but I didn't see the game. You've got, you've got Copenhagen stymieing Manchester United for a full, like, 110 minutes. I mean, it's just chaos, isn't it? Absolute carnage. Yeah, I mean, I was going to start with your hot takes, but actually this is something I love in news that will probably shock nobody. But the Europa League, uh, full of drama. Full of, full of enjoyment. And Dean, I know you had an eye on a, the Man United game. Can we talk about Copenhagen's goalkeeper, please? It was unreal. It was actually, it just, it was funny. It was just so funny because there was no way past him. And when United did find a way past him, it was either disallowed or it hit the post. And that, it just seemed like there was no way past this man. Like Even like Rashford would go through one-on-one. No, not getting past him. Hit a great shot. No, he's plucking that one out the air with his wrong hand. Um... He was unbelievable. And of course, it takes a Bruno Fernandes penalty to get past him. And it was a really, really well-taken penalty as well. That was a good pen. There was not really anything he can do about that. But um, yeah, it was a really good game um, in the sense that it was just really funny because you didn't think Man United would ever score, even though they clearly did deserve to score in that game. I enjoyed the fact that he was just a 30-year-old playing for Copenhagen. Everyone was like, hang on, where, where's he come from? Where's this guy? But I think it might have just been one of those games. You know, when you I distinctly recall... Manuel Almunia having one of these games for Arsenal against Fulham years back. And it was very early on in his career. And we were like, well, this guy's just amazing. He's maybe the best goalkeeper of all time. Arsenal are going to be fine. And then he turned out not to be the best goalkeeper of all time in, in hindsight. But, you know, the sometimes best thing you about get those games. Nobody seems to know his name. Everyone just calls him the Copenhagen goalie. Like, 
I've even forgotten it right now. And last night on Twitter, everyone was just referring to him as the Copenhagen goalie. His name is Jonsson? Carl Johan Jonsson. Yes. Jonsson. Um, I, um, I did know, but I thought if I named him, you wouldn't know who I was talking about. So. That's, that's why it's quite funny, because he's, he's had the game of his life, yet no one actually knows his name. Well, he, should Johan... his, he should change his name to the Copenhagen goalie. He, he needs to, yeah, because that's going to get that. that sentence is going to go down in history do you remember that game the copenhagen goalie had <laughs> all right well let's move on from the europa league and on to a, a managerial change sam and i know this is going to be your hot take for the week yeah so obviously we're talking champions league today but just before we get into the meat and bones of that let's talk about a team that has sadly just exited the champions league and we'll start with a big pat on the back for dean jones who's uh Champions League winner's pick went out in the round of 16. Still a job, That's mate. Not bad. I got to the last 16. <laughs> it could only have been worse if, it went, if they went out in the group. <laughs> so Juventus went out to Leon. Uh, Leon managed to, to, to hold them in Turin and, and, and make that goal advantage that they took from, from the first leg all the way back in February count. And they progressed to the quarterfinals. Juve responded immediately by sacking Maurizio Sarri. We spoke about him last week. We talked about how he'd done, done the first, uh, well, completed the first objective, win the league. Then we'll see if it becomes something more. We also talked about how it hasn't been pretty at times. And, you know, hopefully it becomes something more for him. Otherwise, he might be under threat. And, uh, well, it didn't take them long, did it? And then it didn't take them long to appoint a manager in, re- in replies. Andrea Pirlo. I yeah, mean, kind of no, out of nowhere, right? I mean, I remember like D- you know, Dean was tweeting, right then, who's it going to be, Allegri or Pochettino? And then like three, three hours later, he was like, so neither. Turns out it's, uh, <laughs> it's Pirlo. And this seems, you know, it might seem like quite a leak from Juve. Uh, July 30th, he was unveiled as the under-23 boss. And then August 9th, he graduates to the full job. I mean, do, you reckon he, do you reckon he actually even met the under-23s? <laughs> absolutely no idea. No idea. Did, it, did, he, did he even start the job? Who knows? Um, but here we are. He's now, he's now manager of Juventus. Um, he hasn't even completed his qualifications yet. He hasn't even got his full pro license. And this may seem like, cr- like a crazy thing to do. This may seem premature. This may seem like they're jumping the gun. But, I mean, this is an extreme example of Guardiola, of Zidane, of Arteta, of Lampard, of Scott Parker. Throw that one in for you, boys. Thank you. But ultimately, this is kind of how the game is going, isn't it? I mean, Xavi's probably going to be manager of Barcelona by 2022. At some point in the next couple of years, he'll probably take that job. And yeah, Pirlo hasn't got that sort of bedding in period, that, that one year. But it seems that in the modern game, more and more chairmen and boards are turning to legendary players to come straight in for top jobs. There seems to be a clear trend as they're skipping the middle ground. You either get the old guys that have been around for years and years, like Allegri, and Conte, or you've now got fresh off the bat, I've got one or two years under my belt, but I'm a legendary player. Those are the two types of managers that you see right now. And there's a trend there, and I think we need to talk about why that is. Has anyone got any thoughts as to would, why this is happening? Would you think that there's something in the fact that we're getting to a point now where players are so tactically aware and players are so kind of tactically smart that actually it's about basically driving them on in the, in the dressing room. It's about motivation. It's about having someone who's been there, done it, knows the ups and downs of the actual game as opposed to trying to, to move things on. And, and I was talking about this about Bielsa the other day, right? So to take it back to Marcelo Bielsa, who, who's just taken leads to the Premier League and has had his major successes with clubs who are big clubs, but definitely in a, in a tier below the major clubs. And, and someone was like, well, if he's that good, why haven't Barcelona approached him? And I said, well, the thing with Bielsa Ball is that you're expected to run 
a certain amount of kilometers. You have to have a daily weight check. You have to absolutely leather yourself every single training session. If you take that to Barcelona, Lionel Messi is going to be like, well, no, I'm the best player in the world. Obviously, I'm not going to run 10 kilometers. Like, so, so it doesn't necessarily work as much. And that's, why I think, why we're starting to see these coaches who are, are kind of tactically aware, very, very smart in the, in the dressing rooms. And you extend that to maybe someone like a Thomas Tuchel at PSG. You extend that to maybe a Nagelsmann and all of these kind of coaches. You're starting to see PSG being perhaps the, ex- the major exception. And I think it's because Tuchel had quite a lot of experience already that these coaches are taking the clubs in maybe the tier below. And actually the, the very top teams, the teams who, who are able to buy the world's best talent are actually looking for motivators and people who command that level of respect rather than people who are like, right, this is how you tactically play the game to, to get the most out of it. And I think that obviously there are people like Pep who kind of cross that barrier and, and really do kind of change things. But... I think more and more we'll start to see there being a divide between that very top tier and the tier below. Yeah, I think I think you've you've talked about sort of like commanding that respect there, uh, and that sort of tiptoes into another area which is similar but it is different, and it's it's about the modern dressing room, what it's made up of, and the egos at play, and you know managing a, a, a footballer, a, an elite footballer in 2020, you, I feel like more and more now, you need to have walked the walk in order for you to talk the talk. And I guess we refer back to this example quite a lot. It's the Ronaldo Zidane complex. It's Zidane was the only manager ever to really tame Ronaldo, to be able to talk to him and say, I'm going to bench you for Levante at home because we've got a big, big game midweek. And he goes, no, I want to play. And he goes, no, you're not playing. And, you know, it, with every other coach, Ronaldo was able to be like, well, you don't understand. And so I was like, hey, dude, I've got more World Cups than you for a start. So don't even go there. And he was the only one that was able to really get Ronaldo to start taking games off. And it's about having walked the walk so that you get that level of respect. And I think with these managers, with, with, with Zidane and Guardiola as the peak examples, but you've got Arteta, you've got Lampard, you'll have Xavi, you've got Pirlo. No one can really answer back to these guys. They command the respect of the dressing room. And something Juve talked about as well with, with the Pirlo appointment is that he has the champion mentality that they require because he's steeped in that club's tradition. And the way Sarri talked about the Champions League was as if it would be like, really nice to win it. And Juve like, dude, this is like, we, we hired you to win this. It's not, it's not like a, it wouldn't be nice. You have to do it. Like, this is your job. And it's like a very wishy-washy type of talking, which is similar to maybe Kike Setien there and why, it's, why it's, it hasn't quite worked out there compared to somebody like Pirlo who will understand what is required of him and what is required of Juventus. We've also got to take into account that football clubs seem to be feeling um, the pressure of their decisions more than ever. And I think that um, a club like Juventus, we've got to consider what they're trying to do off the field as well as on it. So Juventus are attempting to become one of the biggest clubs in the world off the pitch as well as on it. So in the next five years, they want to be up there with Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man United and, and making all this money. Were they going on that route with Sarri as their manager? No, and they, they're monitoring this all the time. They're seeing how newspapers are writing about it and websites are writing about it. They're also judging on social media how they're perceived. And they try not to care. They say they don't care what people think of them. But it's impossible not to be affected by the constant stream of stories and opinions that are appearing all across the world. And Juventus want to be liked right now. They want neutral supporters to take to them, to like them, to come to their matches, to visit them, and to buy Juve merchandise. And the way it was going, 
you weren't really going to do that because yes, you might buy a Ronaldo shirt or a Dybala shirt, but you weren't really on board with what Sarri was trying to do because the matches were boring to watch most of the time. And I think that by bringing Pirlo in, that changes. And as a, as a neutral now, you're fascinated by Juve. You're going to watch every Juve game, certainly for the start of next season. And you want him to be a success. And I think that Pirlo already has a, a really good relationship with Agnelli. They've all, from what I've been told, they, they've stayed very close in this time since he left Juventus and that they meet up for coffees whenever they get the chance. And they talk football all the time. And Pirlo loves Turin. He's a club legend and he's cool. And more important than anything, Twitter will love him. So, you know, <laughs> Juventus are just taking a completely different tactic from the route they went down with Sarri. They didn't give it much time to work out, but I think that they've realised that for what they want to achieve in the next five years, they, they had the wrong manager. Yeah, I'm sort of with you there. And we go back to this club image thing that they, they keep talking about. And like, you know, when they redesign their crest, um, they want to be, they want to be, uh, a di- they want to look different. They want to look cool. And do you remember, I mean, I, I, I don't do this enough. Back before Sarri was hired, I said, if you're looking to be like the ultra cool image brand, if you're looking to be a superpower, why are you hiring a chain smoking 60 year old who's super grumpy to be the face of your club? Like yeah. it doesn't suit what they want as the club image. Pirlo absolutely does. Right. So at least that's a step in that direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I think that there is something to be said for the fact that if you do appoint Sarri, and I think this is also something you said, Sam, if you do appoint Sarri, you don't appoint him for a year. Like, mm. full stop. You can't bring in Maurizio Sarri, who is a project manager. And look, we talked about him at Chelsea, and we talked about the way that that was working. But even after a year, we were like, this isn't where it wants to be. It's not reached any sort of excitement levels of of what you saw from Sarri at Napoli and and so on and so forth on top of that you know they didn't really bring any players in that Sarri wanted you know Sarri they just sort of brought those players and Sarri was like I'm uh, not sure not sure this is this is what I was after actually and and so you look at Juventus and you look at the way that Agnelli is running the club and and actually more maybe Paratici who you know is in charge of the, those kind of elements of it, and you think, well, you haven't given this man a chance. He's the full guy, right? He he has become the the face of something where you didn't give enough, you know, background. You didn't give enough time. You didn't give enough uh, of, of the right direction to a project. And then as soon as the project goes wrong, you're like, well, that's the manager's fault. I feel extremely sorry for Maurizio Sarri. I agree with you. I don't think he should have been hired in the first place, right? I don't think that he was the right move for Juventus at that time. But if you are going to hire him, you've got to give him more than a year. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It is. It's, either, it's, it's, it's two plus or it's nothing. It's the worst decision you can make is one year of Sarri. It's just set you back. And now, I mean, I, keep, I don't like to keep coming back to this, but you bought, you bought Ronaldo for 100 million at age 33 with one objective in mind win the Champions League. We're two years in and they've, they've, they've exited at the round of 16 both times. Yeah, like, they're, not, they're not closer. Like, like this is not, this is, yeah, they're not getting any closer. They're getting further away and this is their window to win the Champions League and you wasted a year by appointing a man you probably shouldn't have appointed and then turning back on it at the point where you shouldn't have anyway. So, it's, it's not good. It's really not good. No. So, Dean, let's move things on from uh, a club who didn't sign the players that the manager wanted to a club who are very much in the market for a singular player. What is the latest with Manchester United and Jaden Sancho? Well, we're recording this on uh, the Tuesday morning, the day after the deadline passed, and Jaden Sancho is still a Dortmund player. Uh, so that tells you everything you need to know about how um, much United respected that deadline. Um, no bid has gone in for Jadon Sancho. 
despite all the stories that have been out there about how close things were getting like a week or so ago, um, things haven't really got any closer. Um, you know, from everything I know, the guy that's doing the, the negotiating on Dortmund's behalf hasn't even spoken to United since I think it was Thursday last week. You know, in the, in the days leading up to that deadline, there was not even any conversations taking place. United have felt all along that um, the 120 million euros um, valuation was too high. They felt that um, agents fees are part of that figure that have driven up his, his price tag. Um, and they're not particularly happy about that. Like they've been down this path before with Alexis Sanchez. They ended up paying him a fortune in wages. They ended up paying a lot in agents fees and it all backfired on them now. Look, they're not expecting Jaden Sancho to, to go as badly as Alexis Sanchez did, but they are very wary and they were burned by that experience. Um, but I think as a journalist, the most intriguing thing for me in, in this whole saga um, has been the kind of PR battle that's been going on between the two clubs. Because considering that this transfer really hasn't progressed that far, um, it's, we've been reading some fascinating stuff, uh, particularly on social media. Um, I think we all know that how stubborn Dortmund have been over their price and the deadline, and that definitely grated on United. But I think the fact that Dortmund were pushing their agenda through certain outlets, certain journalists, frustrated them even more because, you know, when you are giving stories and or putting messages out through certain people, um, respected figures as well, you know, say Christian Falk, you know, friend of the pod, say he gets, say he tweets something about the, the Sancho saga. You know, people trust Falk so much that that is basically taken as gospel um, at this stage. Same as they, Fabrizio Romano, somebody like that. Um, these people have got such respect now in that area of work that if you, if they keep having stories, then people just carry on following that storyline. And United have never really put across until the last week their feelings on the saga because they just wanted to get the deal done in a traditional manner. They wanted to negotiate. They wanted to see how far they could push things. And it was slowly, slowly getting there, but nowhere near what, the public perception of the deal was. And I think that that frustrated United to the to the point where I think you've probably noticed that in the last week, there's been two occasions when a load of journalists have at the same time put out a load of um, tweets or articles putting across some of United's feelings on the whole situation and where they stand with it. And look, it's been a really strange one. The fact is Sancho is a Dortmund player right now. And from what I'm told, won't be meeting still that that 120 million euro valuation. Well, and, and if they don't, I mean, Dortmund, Dortmund are under no real pressure to sell. This latest kind of, not it's, it's not completely news, but I think it went a little bit under the radar that Jaden Sancho had signed a one-year contract extension. And suddenly, you're completely back in the mix because Dortmund have zero reason to sell if they don't think that Man United meet their valuation. They don't, but, you know, I have been told separately that Dortmund, you know, could really do with that sort of money through the door. You know, that there have been reports as well that, that Dortmund's cash flow isn't great right now and that the Sancho money, even if they get it, they wouldn't reinvest all of that money because it's going to help them over the next couple of seasons build that side. So... No, I do think that part of Dortmund really do need to sell Jaden Sancho, whether it's this year or next year, I don't know, but they, they do need that money through the door at some point. And um, it's, for me, it's, this comes down to the player himself. I, I tweeted it on Monday, like, if Jaden Sancho wants to become a Man United player, as we were led to believe that he does, 
he now has to force the move. He has to go and tell Dortmund at some stage in the next couple of weeks that he wants to join Man United. And, um, you know, that, that deadline has now been and passed and Dortmund um, say, that's it. Jaden Sancho's with us for next season. Well, sorry, but the transfer window closes in October. And that, as far as Man United is concerned, there's still time to do this and there's still time to, for this player to decide that he does want to become Man United's number seven next season. So let, let's see if, if he's, if he's, wants the move badly enough to do that. Okie dokie. Right, well, let's uh, take this on to our main ranking this week. And, and Sam, we're going to rank all of the Champions League contenders. I know this is something that you, you really love. Well, I did it in written form uh, for Bleach Report early this week, and I've already changed my mind on one of them. Fantastic. So uh, that's that's how volatile this stuff is. But yeah, it's uh, it's obviously the hot topic for the week. It is the main event in football uh, for the month, and uh, I'm excited to share my uh, my inevitably wrong rankings with you. Right, let's get to that after the break. Stick with us. Welcome back to BR Football Ranks, where it is time for our main ranking this week. Sam, do you want to set her up? Yeah, so Champions League week. So let's talk Champions League uh, quarterfinals. Eight teams left, and I have ranked each of the quarterfinalists, the remaining eight teams, on how likely I think they are to win the entire competition. So we will go eight to one, and obviously at number one will be the team I think is most likely to win it. So All right. I'll, kick, I'll kick off. Let's go. Very simple, isn't it? Very simple concept. It caused me quite a lot of problems, to be fair, when I was actually drawing up the rankings, because these things are, can be quite difficult. But at number eight, I've surprised even myself by dropping Leipzig down to eighth. Ooh, that now, I surprised thought, me. I, I thought Leon would be there. I honestly thought it'd be Leon. Um, but it turns out, it's Leipzig, um, and what I've convinced myself here is, I think first of all, there's going to be a bit of a fitness and sharpness issue. Um, now, German teams haven't played competitively for about a month, and Leipzig made a reasonably sluggish start back into post-lockdown. I'm not going to count that too heavily against them, but when you contrast Leipzig not playing for a month, add the fact that they've lost Timo Werner, who was worth 34 goals this season, and the fact that the break probably stops them from being able to play fully high-tuned pressing, which is exactly what they are as a team, as an identity, I struggle to believe that all of those factors combined mean that they can beat Atletico, who are much sharper, basically better, and without Werner picking up those scraps in the box, I do wonder whether Leipzig can actually offer too much of a threat to Atletico here. And I've got Atletico ranked quite high up. I won't say exactly where, but I'm a big believer in their ability to, to be a real contender for this crown. And I think... Over the course of the last few months, this, this, this quarterfinal, Leipzig against Atletico, the advantage has slid from Leipzig all the way through to Atleti. Atleti have picked up in terms of goal scoring. Leipzig have lost Timo Werner. Leipzig haven't played for a month. And all of a sudden, I've gone from thinking they're true dark horses to probably the least likely to win their quarterfinal. So I've got them in eighth. I think it's a really interesting one. And obviously, so much of it does hang on Werner. Like, How much would you say that this... This is about how good Atleti are as much as, as how, how bad Leipzig might be. Look, we, we don't know what this Leipzig side is going to look like because we haven't seen them without Timo Werner, right? We haven't seen them missing their main man. But it's a huge opportunity for someone like Nkunku to, to come through and really kick on. And, and I, I think this kind of tie rests on, on the likes of Marcel Sabitzer. Because yeah. if Sabitzer comes out and starts unlocking defences left, right and centre, Leipzig will score. I know that's much easier said than done. It's, it's Atleti. It's not, you know, uh, it's, this isn't Bayer Leverkusen. Um, but in terms of the way that, that this sets up, if Sabitzer decides that he's going to have himself a game, 
Yusuf Poulsen will get chances and Yusuf Poulsen will probably score at least one of those chances. Yeah, maybe. I think it comes down to a couple individuals in midfield are going to have to have big games. As you say, Sabitz is going to have to going to have to have a big one and Kunku is going to have to have a big one. I don't know if Danny Olmo will be trusted to play um, and replace Timo Werner. If he, if he does, obviously the onus is on him. And the way the game breaks down against Atletico, because they're so rigid and structured, it will be about which individual moments can be conjured by which individual players. And I guess what I'm saying is I back, I back Atleti's structure. And you're right, having Leipzig in eighth is representative of not just the fact that I think there'll be a lesser side without Timo Werner and the fact that they have very little fitness and sharpness having spent a month off, but also they're against a genuine contender for the okay. Champions League. And that, that naturally puts them down to eighth. I don't think they're going to reach the semifinals, so they can't be much higher. Okay. Are you going in seven then? So in seventh is Leon. Um, I thought they were going to be eighth, but I've been very impressed with their solidity uh, against Juventus over two legs. Really, really impressed. I'm tempted to call them the French Atletico. You know, <laughs> it's a solid structure, very hardworking midfield that protects the the defensive line and and, and swats away any balls and, and 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 possession in front of the front of the box. They've got some outlets to play to. They play direct. They've got Memphis Depay, Carl Tokubakambi, and Musa Dembele to play up to. They can run on the shoulder. They can break the lines. And you know what? They're a threat on the counter. And I think they're going to be really difficult to beat. They've got Manchester City in the quarterfinals. I don't expect Leon to win this game, hence why they're in seventh. But I think they're going to make this more difficult than people think. I'm sort of swayed by the fact that these two teams have met twice in the last couple of years. And Man City haven't won either of those games. They've actually found it really difficult to play against Leon. Uh, I know the team would have changed a little bit, but history does have a funny way of, of filtering into these things. So I think City will do it. But Leon, better than you think, will put up much more of a fight than you think and will make City work extremely hard to find those little spaces to, 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 to make the difference. Raheem Sterling, Gabriel Jesus are going to have a tough time of it, I think. I think they'll, they'll get through it in the end, but Leon are in seventh. And I, I really, that's it. That's, I'm paying respect to their solidity there and their performance against Juventus. I was going to say, Dean, how impressed were you with Leon against Juve? Well, I was really impressed. Again, I mean, Memphis, you know, just having the... Um, the confidence now to, to just take a Penenka like that. Um, and, and it just goes to show like what confidence does for a player because you know we've seen it quite often in the Premier League when, when a, a player who's hyped up doesn't make the impact initially that they're expected to and, and just gradually, gradually get worse and worse. And if you think back to Memphis, it was, there was one story actually I remember Wayne Rooney telling about when uh, Memphis was demoted to United's uh, under-23 side and uh, Rooney said to him, he was like, you know, don't do anything like, you know, just come back down to earth a little bit for this one. Like, just turn up for the game, play it, and, and you'll be back in the team. And uh, Memphis turned up for that reserve game in a Rolls Royce dressed in a leather jacket and a cowboy hat. And um, Rooney at that point was just like, I, I don't know what to do with him. I don't know what to do with him. And I think that the problem was just no one understood him at Man United. And I think that, you know, he's got, he's got Leon now in a, a, a club that just let him do his thing. And he's, Obviously, got players around him that complement him, and I think that Rudy Garcia obviously um, wasn't particularly liked when he when he when he came into the club, and there have been protests and whatnot. I think he's probably benefiting from the fact that these are going to be behind closed doors games, and they kind of got nothing to lose. So I think that for me, you know, the, the toughest job Sam's got here actually in ranking um, all these clubs is that the quarterfinals just never turn out how you think they're going to turn out. So logic is kind of going to go out the window at some point in one of these fixtures. 
because one of the big clubs, PSG, Atleti, Bayern, City, will lose. Like one of the favourites will lose. You can think back last season, Tottenham beat Man City in the quarterfinal. Nobody expected it. Ajax beat Juventus. Nobody expected it. If you think back to the season before that, um, Monaco you know, went steaming through at one point a couple of years back. There, there are yeah. fairy tales. And there was the you know there was the Roma, the Roma winning the quarterfinals against Barcelona when nobody expected it. Liverpool beat Man City a couple of years ago in the year when City were were the team to beat in England, and it it this just isn't going to work out how we expect and how Sam's top four is going to look. This isn't going to be the last four semi-finalists, probably anyway, because that's what history tells us. I think something that's worth considering with Leon is that actually, yes, the goal, the penalty they got given was was soft, very soft. Um, but also the penalty they conceded was, was unbelievably soft. It was a and, joke. It was a the, joke. Well, both of them were. Both of those decisions were just were just incorrect. It, yeah, it is that is the truth of the matter, isn't it? They're both just wrong. The the only other goal they've conceded in this tie against Juventus is an absolute rocket from Cristiano Ronaldo. And just sometimes when he does that, there's not much you can do. And it does kind of shake out that way you know you, you look at what what happened there and and you look at the city game and and the way that it all opened up quite a lot i don't think that, that will happen i don't think that leon will be giving away the same kind of defensive mistakes that the real madrid did and, and jesus who thought you'd be saying that right but the point being that i think leon will will be much more solid and they have the capacity to create because they have Hussein Oar and, and memphis Depay, who are, are two of the you know most exciting unlocker door players that you could have in a side there's definitely something in this like i i like where you've gone here Sam. yeah i think uh, i think there'll be there'll be people out there that are probably looking forward to this game the least um it's on the saturday it's the last one there might be a bit of fatigue setting in but i've spoken to a couple already who, who think this is a bit of a foregone conclusion and maybe maybe the worst game of the lot i don't really agree with that i think this is going to be it's going to be really tight city you're going to have to work really really hard for this one so uh just before i finish on leon um, way back at the start of the season, about this time last year, I uh, I picked Leon to do an Ajax as one of my predictions. Um, does this count? Quarterfinals? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Well All right, you I got one. one. I you got one. one. Well, you had Jaden Sancho at twenty twenty as well, so uh, yeah, you yeah, got true. one and a half. One and a half, yeah. I mean, I can't remember the others, but uh, they're probably all wrong as well. I'll take yeah, what I can get. Uh, okay, right. So into the six. This feels so weird. Barcelona six out of eight. Mm. I just don't know. I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but I just can't. I'd be lower if it wasn't for Messi. Like they're, they're not. Like you're only going on logic. To be fair, there's there's very little to tell you that they're going to get past Bayern. I can't see. I can't see it unless Messi goes absolutely nuts, which he absolutely can do, which gives them a chance to win every single game, particularly in one-off fixtures behind closed doors. It's, it can become Messi's playground, um, and I'm super excited to watch that battle between him and, and Alfonso Davies. <laughs> to be fair, that's going to be that is going to be incredible. We'll come come to that a little bit more in the Bayern section, but yeah, Barca. Uh, Messi really turned it on against Napoli, uh, and Barca were pretty good. But we've seen over the last couple of months how how disjointed they can be, uh, how sluggish and slow they can be. It's an older team; they they don't press high, they don't defend with like eleven. Messi doesn't defend, Suarez doesn't defend. I'm sorry, but if you don't defend with eleven against Bayern, you're going to lose because they are way too good. They are way too good for players to be taking the defensive phase off. So Barca are going to have to show me something completely inhuman and different to what they've already shown us before to get through this one uh, i really feel that way so it does feel weird but i put them in sixth i'm not convinced by them and they would honestly be lower because i, ge- I genuinely don't think like i think Bayern 
against Barca is more one-sided than Man City Leon. I, I think I, I really I really feel like it's that it's that one-sided. They'd be lower if it wasn't for the fact that Leo can just dig them out of anything. Yeah, I, w- I would also say that the return of Frankie de Jong and his performance against Napoli was was magnificent. Frankly, he I mean, you look at the amount of ball carries he made and the amount of progressive passes, and without without De Jong they literally were going nowhere and he managed to not only carry the ball I think over 200 meters during the course of the game but also was their most progressive passer as well and and the way that the ball then moved from back to front is something we haven't really seen from Barcelona over the last couple of weeks last couple of months we've seen them be really sluggish slow in possession and and not be able to carve chances that's going to be crucial if they are to get anything out of this it's going to be on Frankie to get the ball from the back to the front at quick enough pace that Messi and Suarez can, can, can make the most of it. And, you know, if that happens, then, then Barcelona have a chance. And I think that, obviously, you're completely right. You can't write off Barcelona because the amount of talent in this squad is still there. The amount of talent in, in their little right winger's shoe is still probably more than most teams have in the entire, in the entire squad. And yet, and yet, this side looks disjointed, dysfunctional, uh, and Bayern looks so good. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And also just like, you know, uh, it's a, look, Messi is Messi and it's, it's hard to discount a team just because of that. But Ronaldo is also Ronaldo. And if the team around you doesn't function properly, one can only do so much as Ronaldo has just shown us against Leon. Juve were rubbish to a man. There were about three good players on that pitch for them. I thought Alexandro was okay. I thought Benedeschi was a bit bright at times. And Ronaldo was very good. That was it. And if the team around you doesn't function, there is only so much you can do. So it's not just a case of where they've got Messi, they'll be fine. The rest of them have to pull their socks up and do it. And I guess I'm just saying, I don't think they can reach the level that they need to, to beat Bayern Munich, who I think are obviously very, very good. We talk about it weekly here. One positive for Barcelona. I mean, there's not many teams left actually in the last eight. They've actually won this tournament before. Um, I think Barca, Bayern, that's it. So that's a positive. At least, <laughs> at, least, at least they're a club with some pedigree in the competition. Unfortunately um, for them, they're playing the only other team that have won it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of these two teams might, is, is going to win it, right? Um, I actually saw um, Lothar Mateus saying that um, Bayern are going to have to play very badly in order to lose to Barcelona, which is a little bit harsh. Um, but, you know, I... I I think what's interesting is that even a die-hard Barcelona fan isn't expecting to win this game, which is it can't have been too many times when Barcelona have been in a Champions League quarter-final and not expecting too much. I know that Bayern fans have also like kind of tried to pull in some of the expectation and enthusiasm a little bit just because of the hard run that they're going to face to get to the final. Because you know, even if they do get past Bayern, what they're going to face, Man City or Leon in the, in the semis. So it's, it's a tough, tough ask to even get to the final. But yeah, I mean, I can see, I can see why Sam's put them there because it's just so hard seeing them get past this one. Look, if they do beat Bayern, they probably will go on and win the tournament. That's, that's the strange thing about it. But um, it's messy or nothing, isn't it? It does feel like that. Who's at five, Sam? So into five, and I'm going to broach these two at the same time because I couldn't really figure out what to do here. Five and four, ordering them. I've gone for... Atalanta in fifth and PSG in fourth, which obviously means I am officially picking PSG to beat Atalanta. I don't know why I think that. I think it's something in my brain that was going, don't be an idiot, Sam. Don't, don't, don't overthink this. Because I, I wrote it all down. I tried to figure out how I felt about this. I looked at the injury issues, the lineups, the, the tactical matchup, and everything kind of points at this point to an Atalanta victory. Like, 
Like PSG are the walking wounded. They're really literally limping into this tie. Don't think Mbappe's going to start. Verratti doesn't look like he's going to be around. They don't have any right backs. Like an Atalanta, okay, they're probably going to have lost Josip Ilicic due to personal reasons, but they're, they're basically all there other than the, the starting goalkeeper, Golini. And you look at the tactical matchup and you think, how are PSG going to cope with the overloads down the flanks from Atalanta? How are they going to cope with the wingbacks driving in towards the box and scoring and assisting? Poor Colin Dagba. It's going to be like a deer in headlights at right back if he has to play, if Tilo Carrere can't go. And it, it, all, of these, all of the logic says Atalanta win this game based on the injury issues that PSG have got. And yet, here I am thinking PSG showed a certain amount of maturity against Dortmund, which I was really impressed by. And it really turned the corner for me. And... Don't discount the fact that they have Neymar. Neymar fit and firing for the first time at this stage in the competition in years. PSG, I'm going to go with just like the kind of heavyweight there, even though I kind of feel like it could go either way. So I've gone with PSG in fourth and Atalanta from fifth. But honestly, I feel like this is a coin flip. It's, it's, it's going to be a great tie. It's, yeah. I think, maybe the one I'm most excited for. It's got everything, hasn't it? It is one of those, those games that... You look at it on paper and you think this is the fairy tale versus the heavyweight, as you say. It is Neymar fit and firing for the first time. It is Icardi who's finally found himself in a place where he's, you know, they've worked out a system that works. I don't even know who's going to play on the right because I'm pretty sure Di Maria is suspended. He's suspended, um, yeah. And it just comes down to like all of these random things. You know, we might have Tupo Moting kicking off a, a Champions League quarterfinal, which is just like great limbs. <laughs> I sincerely hope that's not the case. But you know what? You look at this, uh, this, this, this PSG model, what they are, what they've become, the entertainers that they are. You do not expect them to be lining up for a, for a Champions League quarterfinal with a midfield of Marquinhos, Paredes and Ander Herrera. But that might happen. <laughs> Like, it's about as stodgy as it gets. And I'm also kind of half of the mind that that might help them. They yeah. might actually have to blockade the middle, stop the switches from Atalanta as they switch it from left to right, try and nick the ball, try and play it to Neymar and try and get them on the counter. In my mind, I've got Atalanta dominating this game in possession and, and PSG playing in a reactive sense, which again, it, it, it fries all of the wires in my brain. This isn't how I thought it would be. But circumstances kind of dictate this. No Di Maria, probably no Verratti, probably no Mbappe, no right backs. It's tough. Yeah, I think, I mean, Dean, where do you see this one going? Because it is, is it the title that you're most looking forward to? It, feel, it feels like that. Yeah, I think, I mean, you two have watched Atalanta way more than I have. Um, so you'll know what kind of impact we should have for Ilicic not being around, obviously. Um, you know, the personal reasons he's, he's not going to be playing in this one. And look, whenever I've seen... I've only really watched their big games and obviously he's, he's a man for the big occasions as we've seen. That's probably what would concern me. I also remember watching Atalanta in the group stages when they played against Man City. Um, was it 5-1? Yeah, it wasn't good, but that was... That was pretty... It was a long time ago now. It was about two years ago. And even though... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, Illichit got 21 goals, nine assists last season. Um, there is, a like Sam says, there are a lot of reasons, though, to believe that Atalanta can control the game. And they, they don't have anything to lose, you know? Like, PSG, there is pressure on them to actually finally do this. They do have... They are in the better half of the draw. This is a nice tie for them. And Neymar is in form. Will they bottle it? That's what you don't know. Like, that is what you don't know. And, and again, I go back to, like, recent history tells you, if anyone's going to bottle it in his, in his last four ties, I probably would say that... PSG against Atalanta is a good place to look for an underdog story. 
Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the place you're looking for an upset. I've got a couple of friends who have texted me on separate occasions over the last couple of months being like, just got a feeling about Atalanta. Just got a feeling about Atalanta. And the same friend, to be fair, last week was like, I might put a bet on Leon going through. And I was like, I wouldn't do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, so now I'm just, I'm inclined to go with whatever he says. And, and therefore, here we are. Here, this one might be the fairy tale. But let's move it on into, uh, into number three, Sam. Yeah, so that was the, that was the start of the top four PSG. So basically, as Dean alluded to, um, I've sort of gone with you know the he- the heavyweight boys are the top four, and to explain that a little bit, it's not just that I expect all the quarterfinals to go as they would on paper, but it's a, but this is a ranking of who I think can win the Champions League. So it's not a ca- not a case of who can win their next game. It's who who can go the distance, who can win three games in these scenarios and naturally the bigger and better sides are more equipped to deal with this for a depth perspective from a quality perspective from a mentality perspective so into number three i alluded to it earlier i've half convinced myself that atletico madrid will be crowned champions in 2020 i i i'm I'm almost there with it i think all these things all the things that have happened over the last few months really benefit them that i'm Leipzig are a great matchup. No Timo Werner means that they're severely blunted. I back Atleti to win their quarterfinal. All they have to do is win three games in the most Simeone style possible, and they've won the Champions League. The switch from a, a two-legged knockout to a single knockout format benefits no club more than Atletico Madrid. They just got a grind. Three one-nil wins out, and they are champions. And like, I'm not saying they'll definitely do it. Obviously, with them being third, I don't think they actually will. But like, I wouldn't bet against that. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Leipzig's a good matchup. Single knockout. Their style of football, I think it's going to be cagey stuff. Like, I think mistake-free football will end up winning the Champions League. And they don't really play the odds, do they? They just play very safe percentages. So here we are, Atleti. They've started scoring goals post-lockdown. They're defensively as solid as ever. Uh, without wanting to sound too insensitive, obviously they've had a couple of coronavirus cases, but it looks like they've managed to keep a lid on that. Like the, the, that hasn't derailed the squad's chances of going to Lisbon and really making an impact. They've got the best goalkeeper in the world to fall back on when things get really tough. Uh, I'm I'm halfway there with it. I'm halfway there with it. Atleti are in a good spot. Absolutely. As some sort, I mean, I, I did back them to win a trophy, and uh, yeah. this is the only one they've got left. So, so I, I'm hoping for for my prediction's sake that they can see this out. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of those things where this switch and the way that it's happened and the the timing of it as well, because the way that the Bundesliga has been out for you know four or five weeks now, that Spain's only done two weeks, week yeah, and a half, ten, twelve days, something like that. Yeah. And the fact that Atleti ended the season so strongly, and we spoke about them in our La Liga preview, and I said, I I wasn't sure. I wasn't convinced by Atleti at all before the break. And they came back and they just did what Atleti do. They won games, they they got the job done. And and having seen that, I think they're a a good outside bet here uh, for the Champions League. They scored loads of goals on return. They they dropped five on Osasuna, they put three past Mallorca. Appreciate they're not like like brilliant sides, but two against Hatafe, they scored two at Camp Nou. Like they, they they were one of the top scoring teams in the post lockdown area in La Liga. They were like one of the three highest scoring teams. Like to to add that to what they already are defensively makes them a serious competitor. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Dean Atleti, fancy it? Well, what I think is like like Sam talks about mindset, and I think that that's really going to come into it for all teams now. The finals on the twenty third of August. This podcast is going out on the twelfth of August, and we have, haven't seen a quarter final match yet. Um, it really is like we obviously pitching this as like a World Cup tournament and that's why it is because we haven't seen these clubs tested um, at this level 
um, with such um, so much on the line in such a short space of time and just one leg to get it done. And, you know, over two legs, you, you, there's so many different factors come into these games and, and generally does favour um, bigger teams and favourites. I think that in one-legged games, you do look towards the type of managers that they've got, the type of um, game plans that they're going to implement. And Simeone just looks made to get to the final, doesn't he? I think that I'll be very surprised if Atleti are not finalists in the Champions League. Yeah, I'm basically, that's, that's, I, I think I'm with you there. I mean, I think they're going to win their quarterfinal and then I don't think it matters who wins out of Atalanta and PSG. I think they'll beat either of them. Yeah. And therefore, I think Atleti are, are in the final. Uh, uh, so we'll see how wrong that is. But um, I mean, it leads us on to the top two. And the top two are, well, at number two, I've got Man City. And at number one, I've got Bayern. And I'm going to broach them at the same time because you know what's coming. But also... The final, I, I think the final is Atletico versus whoever wins this semi-final between Man City and Bayern Munich. And in ranking, you think both of them have too much for Atleti. Then I think both of them do. Yeah, I, I think I think at that stage they'll probably they, they are they are intricate enough and they are good enough and they have enough quality to just pull Atletico apart in a way that the others others don't. Uh, it's tight, like it's 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 a it's a Champions League final. I'm not saying like well that's the clear winner, but. I think the winner of Bayern and Man City in the semi-final, if they get to the semi-final, I think they will probably win the Champions League. But I think your final is Atleti v City or Bayern. Bayern, I think, are the best team. Um, that won't be a surprise to anyone listening because it's literally all I've talked about for the last three months. And we probably don't need to go into that much more other than to say, just bring it back to this, this key battle. The, the key battle that I'm looking forward to most out of any game, any battle this week, is Alfonso Davies against Lionel Messi. Like... Messi has got the, gets the better of every single player on earth. Like, there's no one can contain Lionel Messi 1v1. And Alfonso Davies is probably the quickest man ever. And his 1v1 defending and his recovery ability this season has been so strong. I am so excited to see how he handles this, how he gets on with it, what kind of a test it is. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying I think he's going to win it, but like this, this is a matchup that I'm really excited to see. And also, Davies considers Messi his idol. He is his favorite ever player. He's the player that he grew up emulating as a left footed, former right winger, you can kind of see where that goes. Uh, so I did message Fonzie and say, I've just realized you are going to come up against Messi. And he's like, I can't wait. And I'm interested to see, like, like I don't know, like, what was it like going up against your absolute idol? I know you've played against me in five a side. <laughs> <laughs> you tell Very us. Good. Um, uh, but on top of that, Sam, I think it's something really interesting in the way that that goes the other way. And, and you said it earlier in the Barcelona pick in, in the segment, saying that Messi doesn't defend. Suarez doesn't defend, you end up not having 11 v 11 when, when Bayern really turn on the gas, right? If, if Fonzie has a free run at being the spare man against Nelson Semedo, then Bayern are going to see that overload go over and over and over and over again because he will be able to get up and get back again to cover this. And it, I'll be really intrigued as to how he plays that. If he starts off a little bit more conservatively, or if he absolutely just goes for it from the whistle and it is like a, we get the better of them and then we relax a little. Yeah, I mean, he's got David Alaba on the inside at left centre-back, who is it's what way, it's one of the best defenders in the world. He's super smart. He has intelligence. He has recovery ability. He's been, he's been brilliant for Bayern. He's their, their defensive linchpin. So you've got the support on the inside of you. So you've got that trust element. You've probably got Joshua Kimmich coming in off the left, left centre-mid as well, just helping you out on that side as well. So Davies, Kimmich, and Alaba, as a three, will probably have to deal with Messi. And I wouldn't back any trio in the world to deal with Messi over 90 minutes. But 
That's if you were going to pick, if you were going to pick one, that's about as good a trio as you can formulate to deal with that. You've got the smarts, you've got the, you've got the, the technicality, you've got the speed. Between them, they might have enough. I don't know, but I'm really, really looking forward to this. Okay, let's quickly talk about Man City before we move on to our final bit. Dean, how do you see City performing? Because obviously, they're into the, they, they saw off the Real Madrid test quite comfortably in the end. Uh, and there's a kind of overarching feeling that if City are going to do it, this is it, isn't it? This is the time. If they, they, they're not going to get a better opportunity to win this tournament. No, and I think that City are confident at the moment. And, and what they're confident about, and you probably you might even notice this, if you listen to um, interviews that are done in and around games at the moment, the big message that everyone's hammering home is how hard they're working. And Man City basically believe that if they work harder than their opponent right now, then they will go on and win the Champions League because they can technically they can match all of these teams. And I think that, um, you know, you saw the work rate they put in in that Real Madrid game. You know, it was it was tough for them, you know, even having the first leg lead possibly makes it even more difficult psychologically because of the, the different aspect that brings to the game. And when Madrid score and get some hope and stuff. Um, but, you know. City do have a belief and confidence about them that could drive them all the way. And I think that the atmosphere that they actually generated at that behind closed doors game against Madrid, people are at that, that game said, it's the best atmosphere you ever get at a behind closed doors game because the whole staff were like roaring on them. Like every tackle that was made, they were kind of cheering. I think they were jeering the other team. They're, they are in this together and it's like they've got a little crowd coming to all their matches because through the whole of lockdown, I think they've been just waiting for the Champions League. They knew the title was gone. They know how much this means to the club, to Pep. And this this has to really be their time. You know, what a journey it's been for them to, to get to Lisbon. You know, they've, they've come through the group stages, stages. They've, they've gone to Cass. They've, they've had Cass away. You know, they've got through that. They can get through anything. <laughs> Um, and I think that for me, it's it, it's quite exciting to see whether City can finally get to a Champions League final, and and then what Pep does in that final. Listen, the, the Bayern game is obviously going to bring if if we get that semi final, Pep against Bayern is going to bring its its own um, intriguing factors. But um, yeah, I, I definitely think that um, Man City are a massive, massive story already and, and if they actually win the Champions League this season of all seasons then it's just crazy. Here's one. One for the record books isn't it? Um, Sam let's uh, let's move things on quickly and uh, I, I know we have a special kind of finisher this week and it's sort of a half nonsense but not really uh, in that we talked quite a lot about this being a World Cup-esque tournament, a uh, an international-esque tournament uh, and so we thought it would be nice if we gave every single one of these teams an international comparison, I know you've been working very hard on it. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have. I mean, look, Jack, Jack and Dean chipped in with a couple here and there as well, so I'm going to take all the credit. But I have produced a, uh, an international comparison for each of the remaining quarterfinalists. So, like, if you don't have a horse in the race, but you are Colombian, you should support Atalanta. That's kind of how this is going to work. Um, Atalanta feel like 2014 World Cup Colombia. A lot of fun. Good attacking system. The centre mids have to do so much work to balance this thing out because the full backs are more like wingers. The attacking mids are more like strikers. They've got this individual quality sprinkled through the side. So for Ilicic and Papu Gomez, you're basically the Hamas Rodriguez of the side. And they could both bring Lewis Muriel off the bench if they need a goal. So Atalanta are definitely Colombia for me. 
Lovely. Let's yeah. keep going. Let's roll through these because there's some, I got there's some seven real good more. ones. I yeah, got let's, seven let's more. just keep going. Uh, PSG are Brazil. I mean, obviously they share like three players, Neymar, Silva and Marquinhos, who are big players for them. But I mean, this is, this is Jack's one. So I'm not going to claim the credit, but he, he identified the fact that PSG have got uh, a creative, uh, crazy left-hand side through Neymar and a much more sensible right-hand side. So that's uh, your Willian is your Angel Di Maria. You've got Casemiro in the center, who is your Idrissa Ganagay, holding it all together while everybody else just attacks like crazy. And the poor guy in the middle has to, has to solve it all together. So PSG, they definitely feel like Brazil, as well as the fact that they are both coming in as like heavyweight, big name. They're always going to be favoured for these sorts of things, just like Brazil are. But over the last 10 years, haven't, probably haven't achieved what they were supposed to, just like PSG. Lovely. Right. This one's simple. Atletico are clearly Uruguay. Uh, <laughs> Diego sure. Simeone style is basically Uruguay style. Really aggressive. You've got the fourth. You, they play 4-4-2. Defense, defensive block. They press with their strikers. They're very physical outlook. Uh, Cavani, how has he not played for Atletico Madrid? How it makes me really happened? sad. It makes like, me really sad. This, like, like this obviously, just, just sign for Atleti. doesn't make any sense. But uh, Atletico are clearly Uruguay. Barcelona are clearly Argentina. They have no plan other than to give it to Messi and see if he can do something. And that's all we'll say there. Leipzig, I think, are Chile at their best. 2014, 2016, somewhere like that. They fluidly move between a four-three-three and a three-four-three. Very high energy, very aggressive press. They rely on runs from the midfield. And I think Nkunku plays actually quite similarly to how Arturo Vidal did at the World Cup in 2014 when he used those lung-busting runs forward beyond the line in order to get into goal-scoring positions. So Leipzig actually do feel a bit like Chile. Bayern are France because they are just complete. They're just the best, aren't they? They've got everything. The midfield's perfect. Thomas Muller and Robert Lewandowski are a bit Giroud Griezmann, but they're even better. They both have Benjamin Pavard on the right-hand side and both clubs, both teams, sorry, are really good from set pieces. And it's, and, it's, and it's a real difference maker for both of them. So there's a lot of similarities there. I think it's really easy to say that Man City are peak Spain. Uh, I mean, playing that possession play under Pep Guardiola, well orchestrated, nicely balanced. They retain the width. They even have a slight problem at striker right now because Aguero's not fit and Spain have gone into so many international tournaments without a proper striker. And I think we're on to the final one is Leon, And I've gone with Portugal, but I can see an argument for the Netherlands here. But they play deep defensive block. All right, the formation's different, but the central midfielder's role is the same. Destroy, stop, harass, and feed it forward quickly. So Memphis is Ronaldo. Direct, move in between the, in, in between the centre-backs, skip the middle. Uh, but I think that the Netherlands played like that in 2014 as well. Uh, obviously, they've got Jason Denayer and centre-back and, and Memphis, which, who were two Dutchmen. But Louis van Gaal's 2014 Netherlands, quite similar to how Leon play right now and in the same formation as well. But I think I, they feel more like Portugal to me. I, I think they are more Portugal. I felt that you, you were absolutely right in that Memphis does that kind of, is allowed to roam wherever he wants, does that kind of business. And then sort of Hussein Awa behind him feels a little bit Bernardo-esque in the way that he plays as well, in, mm. in his kind of drifting and, and the way that he sets up to, to make things happen and, and sort of ghosts around the pitch. Uh, I think that's a lovely comparison. Yeah. All right. So just to recap that for everyone, if you are Colombian and you don't support a team in this, you support Atalanta now. If you are Brazilian, 
You want you now support PSG. If you are from Uruguay, you probably were, you probably were anyway. <laughs> to be fair, you were. If you are Uruguayan, you now support Atletico. If you are from Chile, you support Leipzig. If you are French, you support Bayern. If you are Argentine, obviously you already support Barcelona. If you are Spanish, support Pep Guardiola and his City charges. And if you're a Portuguese man, then Leon is the club for you. What about if you're English, American, Indian? Uh, Atalanta. Can we all just have a team blue? Yeah, for, just, just Atalanta. Everyone gets Atalanta or, or Atletico Madrid. Anyone, anyone beginning with A is fine. Yeah, indeed. Well, that's pretty much uh, all we got time for with, uh, with that in mind. And all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to Dean Jones. Here's my... We'll be back doing some transfers tomorrow, won't we, DJ? Well, today. We will, mate, yeah. We'll be back on Transfers and 20 on IG, yeah. Can't wait for that. Um, we get a lot of questions on there. And how many do you actually get through? Uh, the last time, I think we got 1,000 questions. I think normally we answer about 10. They're all uh, from me. To be fair, a lot of them are the same. A lot, a lot yeah, of them... I know, and we just finished answering a question on Jaden Sancho, and then like 30 people were like, what's going on with Sancho? Yeah. It's like, get here on time, lads. <laughs> get, get here yeah. for the start. All those questions, by the way, are just me going, why aren't I involved? Why have I been left out? What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, it's because you've got your own little quiz. Yeah. 990 of those questions are just me feeling sad. Well, Sam, you don't need to feel sad this week because that was an incredibly good ranking. And you and I are actually back on the microphone this week, back on commentary. Yeah, we are. We took July off hot mic because we needed to rest and recharge, didn't we? Have a little bit of holiday. Have a bit of me time. Me time is always important, but we are right. back behind the microphone for Wednesday and Thursday. So that is Atalanta against PSG and it's Leipzig against Atletico Madrid. We'll be doing those two at least and then we'll probably look ahead at the semi-finals at some point as well. But if you've enjoyed our hot mic commentary in the previous games post-lockdown in Bundesliga, in La Liga, in the Premier League, then come and join us again. We appreciate everyone who turns up uh, and we'll be having some fun. We will have a laugh, answer some questions, do the bits that we're used to. Thank you very much, Mr. Sam Tai, as ever. Yeah, cheers, buddy. I've been Jack Collins. This has been BR Football Ranks. Thank you for listening. Please make sure you continue giving us ratings, reviews on iTunes if you haven't yet. They, they really do help. Um, they, they're very much important in, in building us up the ratings and things. And, and thank you for listening and thank you for sharing with your friends. The Rank Squad keeps growing and uh, we appreciate you all every single time. Enjoy the Champions League. Enjoy the Europa League for the chaos. Uh, and we will see you next week when we'll have a much better idea of how many of these Sam got completely wrong. See you later. Take it easy.